You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Tuesday to you, and thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day. It's time for Herd Mentality, the weekly episode where you take control of what we talk about here on the podcast by sending in questions, comments, takes, whatever you have regarding the Bills, and I respond to it. And so we have a ton of great stuff to get to. Let's get started. First one comes from Bob. Bob says, it's great to see the running game emerge, especially at this time of the year. What do you attribute the recent success to? I would think it has to be more than just Singletary being the bell cow. Is it different blocking schemes, not running as many RPOs, Josh going under center more, and why did it take so long to find this remedy? Also, do you think Zach Moss is on the roster next year? So, Bob, good question, and I do think it's a combination of a lot of the things that you mentioned. Devin Singletary becoming the lead running back has mattered a ton. You're not splitting his work with Zach Moss, who is a lesser player. And so you have your best option taking all of the work. Is that ideal? No. You want to have a couple of running backs working together in tandem to handle the workload. But as it stands, the Bills don't have another worthy ball handler to take passing attempts away from Josh Allen, right? If you run the football and don't throw it, that means Josh Allen doesn't throw the ball. And the best thing you do is throw it. And so if you're going to hand the ball off and take passing attempts away from Josh Allen, you need to have a worthwhile player to hand the ball to. and. The Bills really don't have that outside of Devin Singletary. And so not taking carries away from Devin Singletary to give it to a lesser player has been a net positive for the team. It's also allowed Devin Singletary to find rhythm, to find confidence, and really get into the groove of being the back. I think it's been a benefit to him as well. So yes, I do think that's a big part of it. There has been a scheme shift in weeks one through 13. The Bills had 27% gap runs and 67% zone runs. In weeks 14 through 18, 48% gap runs and 48% zone runs. You've seen more pin and pull. And you've seen a more effective usage of the offensive line in terms of run blocking. These guys are better at gap blocking than they are zone blocking. So that's been a factor. Josh Allen being under center more has also been a factor, as we've talked about before in the podcast, it makes the offense less predictable when you're under center. And it gives Devin Singletary the opportunity to have a runway with the football when he receives the handoff as opposed to taking the ball from a static alignment standing right next to Josh Allen. And then as for your question about Zach Moss being on the roster next year, my hope for the running back room is Devin Singletary, a low-cost veteran, Zach Moss, and a mid-round rookie competing for three spots on the roster next year. The next one today comes from AJ. I have two questions for you today. One, why did Josh Allen's performance on Saturday not result in a perfect passer rating? I know Peyton Manning had the last perfect passer rating in the playoffs back in 2004. He had one more completion and 69 more yards. They both had the same number of touchdowns. What metric held Josh back from attaining a perfect passer rating. Schrager on Good Morning Football called it the best game a quarterback has ever played. A lot of high praise for Josh Allen. Love it. He deserves every bit of it. 
My second question is to get your opinion on Dawson Knox potentially getting his name thrown around in the top of the tight end conversation. I know he is not quite at the Kelsey, Kittle, or Andrews level, but do you think Knox can eventually work his way up there? And if so, how quickly do you think he can? Thanks for everything you do. Go Bills. My pleasure, AJ. Let's start with Josh Allen and why he didn't get a perfect passer rating. So four things need to happen for you to get a perfect passer rating. Number one, you have to have at least 10 passing attempts and a completion percentage over 77.5%. Josh Allen threw the football 25 times, and he had a completion percentage of 84%. So he checked that box. Number two, you have to have a touchdown to attempt rate of 11.875% or higher. Josh Allen took care of that. His touchdown to attempt rate was 20%. Check that box. Number three, the quarterback cannot throw any interceptions. Obviously, that didn't happen, so Josh Allen checked that box as well. And then number four, here's where he fell short. The quarterback has to have at least 12.5 yards passing per pass attempt. Josh Allen had 12.32. So there you have it. That's why he didn't have 12.5 yards per attempt or more. He had 12.32. As for your question about Dawson Knox as a top-tier tight end, I like where he's heading. You guys know that I'm high on Dawson Knox. I really have enjoyed watching him break out this year. I fully believe he's the right tight end for this football team. He's as physically gifted as any tight end in the NFL. From a size and athleticism perspective, he's as talented or more gifted than any of those top guys. And so the key for Dawson Knox now is stacking good years. He showcased himself well this year, but he has to prove that this is the real Dawson Knox. And so let's see what he looks like next year. And if he replicates this performance, he's going to have a strong case to be one of the best seven, eight, nine, ten tight ends in the NFL with a ceiling to get even better because we know that this guy is still new to the position and he has every physical gift needed to be one of the best players in the NFL at tight end. The next one today comes from Mike. Mike says, how big is the extra day of rest for the Bills? I know we had this exact scenario last year with them, but one round later, is this a significant advantage this time around? And so what Mike's referring to is the Bills played on Saturday, the Chiefs played on Sunday, and the Bills have a rest advantage. And so when you look at the numbers, it wouldn't really suggest that the Bills have much of an advantage based on what these teams have done with rest advantages and with a rest disadvantage. The Bills are 6-4 and four with a rest advantage since 2017. They're 4-2 and two with a rest advantage since 2020. Kansas City is 5-1 and one with a rest disadvantage since 2020 and 11-2 with a rest disadvantage since 2017. I do think that it's a benefit to the Bills to have the rest advantage. That certainly helps. But it's probably mitigated by Kansas City being at home and them obviously showcasing themselves well with an 11-2 record since 2017 with Patrick Mahomes as their quarterback. And so I don't think that this is going to be something that we look at as a deciding factor in the result of the game because Kansas City has handled the rest disadvantage as well. And, you know, the Bills haven't necessarily been super dominant when they have the benefit of more rest. The next one today comes from Kyle. Kyle says, I just wanted to follow up on something you said in the Monday pod 
You mentioned you would like to see John Butler and Ken Dorsey get the next opportunity at coordinator if Frazier or Dable are fortunate enough to accept head coaching positions. My question to you is, do the Bills have the option to decline another team an interview opportunity with Butler or Dorsey for a coordinator position, which you had mentioned a possibility regardless of what happens to Dayball and Frazier? Regardless of what happens this offseason, I think the Bills have established themselves as an organization that almost any coach or front office member would want to be a part of moving forward. So the answer to your question is no, the Bills cannot block Butler or Dorsey from coordinator interviews. You can only block requests for interviews that would be the same or lesser position. So the Bills could block an interview request for John Butler to be the secondary coach for another team, but they couldn't block it if it was for a coordinator position. So you cannot block requests that would be a promotion for the person currently on your staff. Bet Online would like to wish you a happy new betting year as we continue our march through the playoffs. Bet Online remains the number one spot for all the sports wagering action for 2022. It's a new year and they have a newly updated website, so head on over and sign up today and you'll receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code Locked On to get started. From football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for 2022. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, and bet online is where the game starts. The next one today comes from Justin. Justin says Brandon Bean said he double dipped at defensive end purely to stop Mahomes. Joe, what is your take on the D line, and in particular this year compared to last, positives and negatives, and what advantages do we have against the Chiefs' offensive line? And I'm nervous about Wallace and Jackson against the receivers, as the Pats' receivers made some plays and would have. Had a long touchdown, if not for Hyde. Getting home against Mahomes is the big key to victory. I agree with you, yes. Affecting Patrick Mahomes with your defensive line is probably the most important thing that the Bills will do on Sunday night. So to answer your question, obviously Gregory Rousseau was tremendous in the Week 5 matchup against Kansas City. And I thought the Bills in that game did well to pressure Mahomes with four. And remember, they didn't blitz him a single time in 63 dropbacks. Comparing this year's D-line to last year's, they have a much deeper group in my mind with more length and more variety in terms of skill sets. Now, Kansas City's speed and ability to hit deep passes should concern us all. And yes, I agree with you, organic pressure on the quarterback is critical this week. This is the game where the loss of Trey White will be felt the most. And so to me, that goes back to the D-line. It's a big test for them this week. The Bills' ability to win this football game resides heavily on what type of impact the defensive line can make. The next one today comes from Scottish Bills. Scottish Bills says, Joe, loved your Victory Sunday show. Agreed completely with the things you didn't like, and more specifically, Levi Wallace's game. I thought he got beat pretty easy by an average set of receivers. After watching the game, do you think we will finally address the question of CB2 in the upcoming draft? And if you do, do you think there will be a realistic CB2 target in the draft? Thanks for everything you do and keep up the good work. I'll be honest with you, I have been overwhelmingly satisfied with Levi Wallace this year. And as I talked about during the summer, he's been an underrated part of this team for a while. I hope he's back as the starter opposite 
of Trey White. And I would be fully satisfied with Trey White, Dane Jackson, and Levi Wallace as the top three outside corners next year. So draft some developmental depth on day three. But my hope is that Levi Wallace is back as the CB2 and the Bills are able to get a contract extension done with him. The next one today comes from Chris. Chris says, what can the Bills do to slow down the Chiefs offense, especially without Trey White? It always goes back to getting pressure on Patrick Mahomes with four rushers. That enables you to drop seven players in coverage and flood the passing lanes. Let's face it, there are going to be athletic mismatches in favor of Kansas City when it comes to their receivers against the Bills' corners. And so it's all about staying leveraged, getting pressure with four, and understanding that they're going to make some plays. You're not going to bottle them up. And so limit the explosive plays, have seven guys in coverage, stay leveraged, and when it gets down to the red area, you have to try to make them kick field goals and not score touchdowns. I think that's what you do to slow them down, especially without Trey White. John says, what a win. I know that when Buffalo wins the coin toss, we tend to defer, but I'm really liking when we receive the ball and go up seven right from the start. The offense seems to come out hot, and then the opposing team starts their offense with a deficit to chase. Months back, you pulled up the stats to explain why coaches defer, but do you think with this Bills team, we should keep going with what works and receive at the start? I don't agree with that idea. I think it's always a smart choice to defer and get the ball first at the start of the second half. And this has been an overwhelming trend in the NFL where it's not just the Bills, but something above 80% of teams choose to defer when they win the toss. And that's because it gives you a better chance to win the football game. And so that's first and foremost. You defer because it gives you a better chance to win. Now, I love this quote from Mike Martz, the former head coach of the Rams. And this is what he said about deferring. And this maybe will drive things home even further. He said, quote, offensively, when you take the ball at the beginning of the game, you have an idea of how the defense is going to play you, but you really don't know. By deferring, it allows you to open up the second half after a full half of seeing what the adjustments are. So now you can come back out knowing exactly what you're going to see and begin the game that way. People will come up with a different plan for you, maybe something that you're not prepared for. So instead of trying to adjust on the fly with the first series, you go ahead and let them start off. Then you get the ball and make your adjustments. Now, when you get the ball in the second half, you've made all your adjustments that you want to do, so you should get a real good series coming out. So basically, you get your offensive possessions with the most available information to have the best possible plan and take away that opportunity from your opponent. So I I just think you have to continue to defer. It's great when you come out and score a touchdown, but in the long run, if you put your number one defense out in the field, force them to punt, they waste that opening possession, you get the ball back, and now you can do exactly what you're talking about in terms of putting them in a deficit, but also allowing you to have the majority of your offensive possessions when you have the most information available to have the best possible plan. The second question from John was, the Patriots always have way more players on their injury report than what seems to be truthful. Do you think Bill Belichick putting 12 players on the injury report is a smokescreen? 
I wouldn't put it past him to make opposing teams have to evaluate different scenarios if various key players are expected to potentially be out. It also allows the injured team to engage in more of an underdog mentality and drive. Clearly, it didn't work this time around, but it seems like they did that all three games we played them. Seems a little shady. Yeah, look, I mean, this is what Belichick's been doing for years. I mean, all the players he could possibly put on there as limited and questionable, he puts it on there. And I'm not sure he's doing anything wrong. If you take one rep off, if you do one thing that's not a full practice, you qualify as limited. And so you could put them on the report as limited in terms of practice participation. And if there's not a 100% chance, which you could easily manufacture, that they're going to play in the game, then you give them a questionable designation. And so it seems shady, it seems obnoxious, but it's within the rules and it potentially gives his team a competitive advantage. So it's hard for me to be overly critical other than it's annoying to have to deal with as an opponent to which Bill Belichick would say, that's exactly why I do it. People think unusual circumstances mean complicated taxes, but for TurboTax Live experts, that's what makes things interesting. Maybe you inherited a condo and are renting it out, or maybe you're getting paid in crypto and aren't sure how it's taxed. For TurboTax Live experts, an interesting life can mean an even greater refund. Luckily, TurboTax Live can match you with the right expert who has experience in your unique situation and can answer all of your tax questions right from your phone or computer. They even take care of the whole filing process for you. Whether you launch your own startup or are working multiple jobs and jungling multiple incomes, an experienced TurboTax Live expert can help you during the entire filing process from start to finish to get you the tax deductions you deserve. Visit TurboTax.com to learn more. You do your thing. They've got your taxes. Intuit TurboTax Live. The next one today comes from Tim. Tim says, after the defensive performance we just saw, I found myself laughing that we have the number one NFL defense, a first-team all-pro safety, and a second-team all-pro safety. Is this level of snub commonplace, or does this feel unprecedented to you? How can a defense that's been so dominant have no pro bowlers but two all pros. Yeah, Tim, I think we all feel some type of way about that. If I'm not mistaken, it was a team like the 2012 Steelers as the only team to finish on top of the NFL in total defense, but not have a pro bowler. I think we can all emphatically agree that Poyer and Hyde were absolute snubs and there's no reasonable explanation as to why they are not pro bowlers. Second question from Tim is, Beasley has found a few glimmers this year, but I think it's fair to say his production has been down. Do you see this as a change in scheme, emergence of Knox and McKenzie, less blitzing of Allen this year? What do you primarily attribute this change to? Well, let's first of all talk about, has it really been a decline in production? Beasley played in one more game this year than he did last year. He has the exact same amount of catches with 82. He's received five more targets this year than last year and one more game played. The big shift in his production is that his yards per catch went from 11.8 in 2020 to 8.5 in 2021. And because he's getting significantly less yardage per reception across 82 receptions, his yardage is down. And so that, on top of this team having a deeper crop of weapons, especially the emergence of Dawson Knox, 
and a better rushing attack, I think it's impacted Cole Beasley's raw statistics, but also not maybe as much as we think it has. I just think the offense is less reliant on him, but he's still part of what makes this offense so dangerous. And I love how they were able to factor in everyone against New England on Saturday night. That was one of my favorite parts of that performance. You saw the ball get spread around to so many different players. Nine receivers caught a pass on 21 completions. And when you can spread it around to so many different worthwhile targets, you're tough to defend. The next one today comes from Tim, and this is a different Tim than the previous question. Tim says, I was just thinking about how good the Bills' defense has been all year, but how dominant it's been over the last month or so, and I've come to the conclusion that Ed Oliver is the player that has been the overall difference maker. Just curious if you could give your thoughts on just how good he has been this season, even though the stats may not tell the whole story. Now let's go out and continue this revenge tour this postseason and hang the Super Bowl banner up in Orchard Park. Go Bills. I'm here for it, Tim. Uh, Yeah, I think Ed Oliver has definitely been a key catalyst as to why this defense has been so good all year and why it's really played its best down the stretch. And I don't think we can not include Harrison Phillips into that conversation because him working in tandem with Ed Oliver has been so good for this defense. And they've both been extremely disruptive. And just having a stable one technique, whether it's been Starr this year or Harrison Phillips, has been such a benefit for Ed Oliver. And I think he's clearly had his best season. I'm very satisfied with where he's at. He's made it a very easy decision for Brandon Bean to pick up his fifth-year option. And so as a believer that everything starts up front and Trench play is the most important part of your defense. Seeing Ed Oliver take this step and seeing what Harrison Phillips is doing and seeing the overall depth of this defensive line rotation show up much bigger than it did last year. And you have a stable player like Greg Rousseau defending the run and how he's been able to challenge the width of the pocket as a pass rusher. It's all working together for this Bills defense to play as well as it has and allowed for Ed Oliver to make the type of impact that he's been able to make this year. And so, yes, major props to Ed Oliver and where he's at in his development. The next one comes from Chris. Chris says, I rewatched the end of the game last night to revel in the outcome. Yes, Josh Allen had a phenomenal game, but I was really impressed by his sportsmanship after the game where the CBS feed showed him seeking out Mac Jones to console him. I made a point to show the clip to my sons because we, Society as a whole need more sportsmanship. Yeah, I think this is a great thing to highlight, Chris. And, you know, Josh Allen has been recognized for his sportsmanship by being a finalist for the Rooney Award. And Josh Allen is a fierce competitor on the field, but he's a complete gentleman before and after the game. And that is something that definitely stands out about Josh Allen. And also, he's at that point in his career where he's one of the faces of the NFL. He's widely accepted as one of the best players in the entire league. And so it's on him now to embrace that role and be that figurehead at the position that other young quarterbacks look up to. You know, Josh Allen went through this during his rookie season when he went and played against Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and those types of guys. And he was in that spot, right? Now it's 
Josh Allen's turn to be that figurehead for other young quarterbacks that are coming through. The next one comes from Ken. Ken has a couple of questions for us here. First of all, he says, what in the world took the Bills so long to know that Ryan Bates would be a stud at guard? Could they not see this in practice or just wanted to groom him as the next center? So I have some thoughts on this. First of all, and I've said this before, versatility and offensive line keeps you on the roster, but off the field. You see it all the time in the NFL. Guys that can play multiple positions, they never get in the starting lineup because they're too valuable as a backup. You can agree or disagree with that line of thinking, but I'm telling you it's very, very common in the NFL. Number two, this was a college tackle. He played some guard in 2016, and that's really it. So this is a situation where he has embraced a position switch where he played tackle through 2018. And so now he goes to the NFL and has to learn center and learn guard. And you know, it's going to take some time for him to develop and acclimate and figure it all out. And then the last thing I'll say about this is you can ask yourself two questions about this, neither of which I can confidently answer. The first one is, why did the staff not recognize his ability and play him sooner? The other side of that is he needed every bit of the time he's been afforded to be positioned to step in and perform at this level. I don't know what the truth is, but I can tell you that he's playing well and development in the NFL takes time. As we know, as we've seen this roster evolve, we know this stuff takes time outside with the latter. Ken had a second point he wanted to make. He said, just a note to Bills fans, my college roommate, Charlie Coiner was the tight end coach in the Jerron Gailey era. When I used to visit for games, he would never really give me any inside scoop about the team. Good for him. But one thing he repeatedly told me was that there was so much that goes on behind the scenes that fans don't know about. So when you guys are wondering why the team is doing certain things, just know that there is a ton of stuff going on that we will never hear about. I try to keep that in mind while trying to figure out what the Bills are doing. And the last thing that Ken wanted me to share is that I just want to give you a shout out about your approach to Bills games. I've really taken this to heart, especially what you said about your dad and how he used to react to Bill's losses and how it stuck with you. I'm almost 62 now, and I know I took a lot of Bill's losses too hard and showed some bad behavior around my kids in the past. No more. I'm on the Joe Marino. They'll either do it or they won't train, so I know I won't get too down or up on future games. Thanks for sharing that, and I'm happy to hear that. And I'm certainly not going to tell people how they should fan. You know, you got to do what works for you. But I don't want fandom to be a negative thing in terms of the relationships that I have with my family or for the results of Bill's games to create a mood and attitude in me that is not healthy for the relationships that I have with my wife and my daughter and my family members. And so I try to make sure that fandom is only a positive for me. And that works for me, and that's what I want it to be. And you got to do whatever works for you. But I think it's a healthy thing to make sure that football fandom is a healthy thing for you in your life. The last one today comes from Van Vin says, have we seen a big enough sample size to say that Ryan Bates is a long-term answer at guard? And if he is, would you still invest an early round draft pick on an interior lineman? I feel he has shown enough and would still invest in the trenches. So I've seen enough from Ryan Bates for me to believe that the Bills don't have to pick an interior offensive lineman early, but I still wouldn't mind it. 
you know, this is a player that's probably going to have a good chance to be the Bills' starting left guard next year, and I think he's earned that. But I just want the Bills to continue to place resources in this offensive line and in this defensive line because, as we know, the offensive line depth gets stressed every single year. And your offense can be wrecked by not having a stable offensive line and stable depth. And so, no, I'm not ready to dismiss the idea that the Bills should invest an early pick on offensive line because Ryan Bates has played well for a few games now. I'm hopeful that he can be the long-term answer. That would make me very, very happy. But I am going to continue to invest and make sure that Josh Allen has what he needs in front of him to be the best version of himself. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here today on the podcast. Tomorrow, we really flip the switch and start to focus in on the Kansas City Chiefs. And so tomorrow will be the primer. Thursday, the crossover preview. Friday will be our typical routine. So make sure that you are subscribed. Would love it if you took a second to rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow.